Thus far in our summer sermon series, The Most Excellent Way, Love, we have learned what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then we learned what love is not. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Now, last week, we watched the Holy Spirit-inspired word contrast love. This agape, unconditional, selfless, godly love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Now, today, we're down to our last two weekends of the series in the definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, with this crescendo that begins in verse 8 with the three precious, powerful words, love never fails. But before we arrive at the summary statement, the text moves from these 11 specific actions of love to a context that makes a universal statement about love, putting it in relation to all things. And the apostle does this by connecting these, the, the word love with four verbs, bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring. And each of these verbs are followed by the adjective awe. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And the very stockpiling of these verbs with the subject of love and the adjectival force of all directs our thoughts to the fullness of love, which is why we're covering the first two in today's message, and we'll wrap up next week with the last two uh, in this uh, quadrant that's listed here. Now, each of these four statements lead to the same place, the fullness of God's love, which God desires to be manifested within His children. So, as we open each respective door on these aspects of love, we discover how interdependent God's love truly is, how complete and full it is. Number one, it tells us, love always protects. And that's a very rich word there, protect. It means to cover or to conceal. Its cousin in the Greek language on the noun side means a roof or a shelter, protection from hostile elements. Many of us are familiar with 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, which tells us above all else, love each other deeply, for love covers a multitude of sins. When we love people, we protect them. We don't broadcast their bad news. We don't gossip about them. We go the extra mile to protect another person's reputation, and we do our very best to guard another person's dignity. Love does not nitpick, constantly, you know, pointing out someone else's flaws. And here's the deal. Not everything in life we'll always be able to agree on. We can't always even work everything out, and we can't even always talk everything out. Some things in life we just have to decide not to worry about. Friends, if you took the time to point out every one of my flaws, and I took the time to point out every one of your flaws, we wouldn't have time for anything else in this world. And boy, is it easy to point out our spouse's flaws or point out our children's flaws or the co-workers that we work with or the people in the church or how about people on the other side of the political aisle. It's really easy to find faults with other people, but love does not nitpick. This love also doesn't have to regret opening its mouth in public. One pastor I once knew said, there have been many times in my life 
when I've been sorry that I opened my mouth. But there's never been a time when it comes to criticizing others that I have regretted keeping silent. When it comes to needless criticism of others, love does not participate. The NIV translates this, it always protects. The contemporary English version translates this, love is always supportive. The NLT translates this, love never gives up. And the King James Version, which many have been familiar from their childhoods, says love bears all things. And some believing in the penning of this verse that the Apostle Paul may have been thinking of the shade of a tree or the refuge of a house. Others believe he was referring to protection in terms of covering a cloak or a garment of love. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin and they recognize their nakedness. So they try to cover it up with fig leaves. And prior to their sin, they felt no shame. After their sin, they felt nothing but shame. And in verse 21 there, it tells us the Lord God made clothes from the animal skins for the man and his wife and dressed them. Number one, this is the very first time the ground has been stained with blood, the blood of an innocent animal for those who are guilty. We also have clothing being made. So God, who's the creator and the sustainer of the universe, becomes a tanner of hides and becomes a tailor at the same time and makes clothes for Adam and Eve to wear. And then it tells us in this verse that God dressed them, taught them the basic ADL skills, activities of daily living, so they would know how to dress themselves. See, God was covering them. He was protecting them. And yes, there was judgment for sin. They were banished from the garden. The world had fallen. Justice was upheld. But God is love. So he protected Adam and Eve. In Galatians 3, 26 and 27, we learn there that when we're in Christ, we're children of God. And we've been baptized into Christ. And we're all clothed with Christ. That's the word in duo there, to put on Christ. Our being clothed in Christ is being robed in Christ. And that's not our doing. Just as it wasn't with Adam and Eve's covering in the Garden of Eden either. God clothes us and he protects us with his love. And I bet every single one of us can look back over our lives and name the clear instances of God's protection. Did God ever protect you from a bad relationship? Did he ever protect you from making a terrible decision? Did God ever protect you from taking the wrong job or making the wrong move? Did God ever protect you from saying the wrong thing? Or did he ever guide you to do or say the right thing at the right time? Has God ever protected you in such a way that you actually end up looking better than you really are? Here's what Isaiah 61 verse 10 says. I delighted greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in his robe of righteousness, or and that means his goodness, the robe of God's goodness. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 3 says this, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we know the scriptures teach us that the good shepherd protects the sheep. And we know that pastors as God's under shepherds, the Bible teaches, should protect the church. And all of us as loving Christians need to protect one another and protect our fellow human beings because love always protects. Now moving on, love always trusts as well. 
We live right now in a highly cynical age. People don't seem to know who they can trust anymore, or at least they wish to discover where someone stands politically or class-wise or socially or spiritually, or they a vaxxer or a non-vaxxer before they are deemed trustworthy. Who can we believe anymore? Who even tells the truth anymore? Well, when this verse, love, always trusts, says this, it means that love always believes. Uh, This love believes that the best is always possible as long as it can be done. This love gives others the benefit of the doubt. It It wants to believe the best about other people. It sees the cup as half full instead of half empty. In our judicial system in America, a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Well, this is love's stance. Love is willing to wait for all the evidence to come in before rendering judgments. And as long as there is reason to, love will always give the benefit of the doubt. Arthur Bressy writes, by all appearances, Skinner was a dead man. These are the words he shared when he was retelling the account of the day that he found his best friend in a World War II Japanese concentration camp. They'd grown up together in Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. They played ball together. They double dated together. They even skipped school together. In fact, they joined the army together and they even rode the same transport ship to the Philippines. But it's then that they were separated. Skinner was on baton when it fell to the Japanese in 1942. Arthur Bressy was captured by the Japanese one month later. And through the POW grapevine, Arthur learned the whereabouts of his friend. Skinner was in a nearby death camp. So Arthur volunteered for a work detail in hope that his company might pass through that other camp. And one day they did. And he asked permission from his guards to to go and have five minutes to see his friend. He knew to go to the sixth side of camp because the camp was divided into two. And those expected to recover were on one side. Those expected to die were on the others. And those barracks were called Zero Ward. When Arthur found Skinner, he called his name and out of the barracks walked a 79-pound shadow of a friend he had once known. He writes, I stood at the wire fence of the Japanese POW camp on Luzon and watched my childhood buddy, caked in filth and racked with the pain of multiple diseases, totter toward me. He was dead. Only his boisterous spirit had left his body, uh, hadn't left his body. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. His blue eyes, watery and dull, locked on me and wouldn't let go. He was the dormitory of tropical diseases, malaria, dysentery, pellagra, scurvy, beriberi. He couldn't eat. He couldn't drink. He was nearly gone. Arthur didn't even know what to do or what to say. His five minutes were almost up when he began fingering the heavy knot on the handkerchief tied around his neck. And in that handkerchief was his high school class ring. And at the risk of his own life, he had smuggled that into the POW camp, knowing the imminence of disease and the scarcity of treatment. And he'd been saving it to barter for medicine or food for himself. But one look at Skinner told him that he could not keep the ring any longer for himself. 
So he slipped it through the fence to Skinner and told him to wheel and deal with it. Skinner objected, but Arthur insisted, leaving his friend behind and thinking he may never see his friend again. What kind of love would do something like that? What kind of love would give its best to someone who is certainly dying or literally dead? It's a love that always believes in you. Well, Skinner took the ring and buried it in the barracks of his dirt floor. The next day, he took the biggest risk of his life, and he approached the kindest guard at the camp, passing it through the fence. Takai, the guard asked, is it valuable? Yes, very, Skinner assured him. The soldier smiled, slipped the ring into his pocket, and walked away. The next day, as the guard walked past Skinner, a pack dropped at his feet, sulfonilamide tablets. A day later came limes to combat scurvy. Then came the next day canned beef. The next day, a pair of pants. Within three weeks, he was on his feet. Within three months, he was transferred to the healthy side of camp. In time, he was able to rejoin the work crews. As far as Skinner knew, he was the only American to ever leave the Zero Ward alive. By the way, Skinner isn't the only one in life to ever be given a ring. Luke 15 has a parable called the prodigal son, but really it's a parable of a loving father. And a son does something there, the second son in line in the family. He asked for his inheritance early, which is something they didn't do in that culture, but the father gave it to him. He went off to a foreign land and wasted it all on licentious living. And he was so desperate, he ended up slopping hogs and having to eat the very slop that the hogs were eating. And that's when he came to his senses and realized that his father's servants were better off than he was. So he would return home in humility to his father. But all the while, the loving father was looking for him. And when he saw him come, the father ran out to him and threw his robe, his covering, his protection over him. Had a fatted calf killed so they could have a ceremony and celebrate the son who was lost has been found. And then he put his ring on his finger. And in Jesus' time, rings were signs of de delegated sovereignty. The bearer of the ring could speak on behalf of the giver. It was even used to push into soft wax, to seal documents, to verify their authenticity. A person could even conduct business in the name of the one who gave it. Who would ever give the power of attorney to a prodigal son like that? Who would ever hand over the family credit card to the least responsible child? Who would ever give any kind of authority to a scoundrel like this? You know who would do that? A loving Heavenly Father. And He's done the very same thing with us. Do you know that we're His ambassadors? We get to speak in this world on behalf of God. We get to be God's caregivers. You know, what we do for the least of these, we do unto Him. When we forgive others, we're acting on behalf of God, and we're never more like God than when we do that. When we pray, God listens to us, and even God gives us voice in His church, the called out assembly. And I could go on and on. God, who's always and completely trustworthy, believes in us. And amazingly, he never takes his ring back from us. 
He never takes the robe back, the covering back from us when we screw up and we do stupid things. God is love, and he always believes in us. What did Jesus say to Peter, the one who was going to go and deny him three times? When, G, when Peter, he asked everybody, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, Peter, you're Petra. You're the rock. You're the rock. Upon that confession, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, knowing that's who is going to deny him. Not that far down the road. What did he say to the woman caught in adultery? In John chapter 8, when the accusers bring him before him, and Jesus says, well, hey, who's without sin can cast the first stone. Does a little writing in the sand, and then he looks to the woman, and he says, where are your accusers? Who, who, who accuses you? No one has condemned you. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus, in each of these cases, was believing the best about each of these people, not the worst. So through the Holy Spirit, couldn't we just take some of that belief God has in us and share it with others? Actually believing in someone else? You know, Ed, Edward Victor Hill, Sr., E.V. Hill, as he affectionately was known by millions of people uh, around the world, was a famous American pastor, senior pastor of Mount Zion uh, Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, California, from 1961 until his death in 2003. And it was one of the largest African-American churches in the entire United States of America. Many became familiar with Pastor E.V. Hill because of his regular keynote messages at the Promise Keeper rallies when those were uh, popular years ago. What many did not know is that when he was a young man, that he married Jane Carruthers, who came from a wealthy, sophisticated background. And the marriage raised a lot of eyebrows among the elite in America, wondering how such a refined woman would ever marry someone like that who had grown up in abject poverty from Texas. Well, shortly after they were married, Evie convinced his wife that he should buy a gas station to manage. She warned him. He didn't know anything about running a gas station, and that they would risk losing all their money. Well, she was right. The day finally came when he lost it all, and the station and all of their money that had invested in it. And her response to him was, well, I've been doing some calculating, and I was thinking if you had been a smoker and a drinker all these years, we would have lost about the same amount of money anyway. So let's just move on. With those words, she was saying to her chastened husband, you're a good man. I still believe in you. Not too long afterward, Evie came home to a nice candlelight dinner that his wife had prepared for them. Hurrying into the bathroom to wash his hands, he flipped the light switch on and there was no electricity. When Evie sat down at the table, feeling deeply humbled by their circumstances, Jane began to cry and said, I know you've been working so hard and we don't have any money for the electric bill. So they just turned out the power. So I just thought that we would eat by candlelight tonight. In the late 1990s, when Jane Hill passed away, her beloved Dr. Hill, E.V. Hill, declared at her funeral that by God's grace, she was the reason that he was so successful in his life. In the darkest hours of life, she never stopped believing in him. 
He said she could have cried out, I was raised in the home of Dr. Carruthers and never, we never had our lights cut off. But amazingly, she said, somehow we'll get these lights turned back on. Let's eat by candlelight. What a difference it makes when we believe in the people around us, when husbands believe in their wives and wives believe in their husbands, when parents believe in their children and children believe in their parents, when parents believe in teachers. Look at the crazy shortages in America right now. Over 300,000 teachers short right now at the start of the school year. Many are leaving education because people don't believe in teachers like they should and they're underappreciated. Imagine if people appreciated one another, if they believed in one another, if they believed in their students, if friends believed in friends and co-workers believed in co-workers, and true church members actually truly believed in each other. And oh, what a difference it makes to people in their dark moments of life to hear someone show them or say to them, I believe in you. Love never fails because love always protects and always trusts. Let's pray. Lord, as your children, we come to you sinful and selfish, yet you receive us with your never-failing love and with complete forgiveness. Oh, Lord, enable us to extend the same grace to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.